Welcome. This is the uh, third of the anatomy of the thorax, AT3, and I'm calling this the thoracic mix. We've got a few extra things we need to clean up before going into the mediastinum, uh, the pleura, the lungs, the bronchopulmonary segments. And so we'll start a little bit with the osteology of the uh, thoracic cage and its relevant components. I think it's appropriate to take out, if you can, a typical thoracic vertebra. So one from the middle has a heart-shaped body, which is the anterior mass, uh, which it forms with the vertebral arch, surrounding the vertebral foramen posteriorly located, and with the vertebral arch consisting of the pedicle and then the lamina on either side. The laminae run from the junction with the transverse process to form the spine, and that then projects downwards with quite a tilt in the middle of the thoracic spine with an overlap of its fellow spine about two vertebrae below its originating vertebra, so that the whole thing is really constructed a bit like the eaves on a roof. The notching on the pedicle creates, of course, the intervertebral foramen, which transmits the relevant spinal nerve, some intervertebral veins, and the small spinal artery. The proximity of the nerve to the disc gives it its particular vulnerability. From the pedicle lamina junction is the superior articular facet, which articulates as a sharp ridge with the inferior articular facet of the vertebra above. There are two body articular facets, as I've already explained, the upper articulating with the lower facet on the head of the corresponding rib, and the lower with the upper facet on the head of the rib below, so that there's a slight angulation with this arrangement whereby the middle rib of the series allows the head of the rib to actually sit slightly higher than the tubercle. Now, this arrangement uh, has the T1 and the last two or three thoracic vertebrae that differ in the sense that they don't have a complete so-called zygo-apophysial joint or a complete facet for the head of the corresponding rib for obvious reasons. And that has a lower articulation, so the heads and tubercles here are actually at the same horizontal level or plane. So these things are, in fact, uh, in those uh, other parts, the T1 and the last two or three thoracic vertebrae, they're more hinge-like in their universal movements. And so it affects, actually, thoracic movement. The last two, obviously, have very small transverse processes because they don't articulate with the ribs and uh, they, of course, have no costal cartilages, they're just floating. And the last thoracic vertebra has a, a kind of lumberized inferior articular facet that's orientated um, differently, so that this area has really no rotational movement, whereas there is rotational movement in the mid-thoracic vertebra, so that these articulating surfaces uh, lie on the arc of a circle which is centered on the vertebral body, or as a vertical axis, they're going through the vertebral body center. That lumberization makes the lower thoracic vertebra rather stouter and overall larger because they're taking a heavier weight. 
and that affects also the likelihood of fractures. So these things are all a little different with their rotational movements for different reasons. The discs of the thoracic spine are actually thinnest so that there's some movement here, but it's a bit limited. And these zygoapophyseal joints, which I briefly mentioned, contribute to a vertebral alignment and control, uh, and as I've alluded to, the amount of rotary movement and stability and weight bearing. And these are why there are all of these little minor differences. Um, okay, then, for those who are writing an essay uh, on this, we could also say that the vertebrae are important as protection of the spinal nerves, that they're important for thoracic support and abdominal support for that matter, and for body flexibility. The intervertebral discs, the laminae, the pedicles, the articular processes, they all allow for a space of movement for the spinal nerves with the thorax producing a typical kyphosis. This is for people writing perhaps a short answer on this uh, area. The thoracic spine is unique for its costal attachments. And if you've got time, although I'll be doing this next year when we're talking about the back and um, neurology, um, we'll be having a look at the cervical and lumbar vertebrae. The thoracic vertebrae is a bit different with T5 to T8 just in brief being the most typical. And the main thing of difference here is the presence, as I've said, of costal facets. Remembering that there are six facets per thoracic vertebrae, two for the transverse process and four demi-facets. The transverse process articulates with the rib tubicle and the demi-facets paired, as we've said, as superior and inferior. It never hurts to reinforce. The demifacets are bilaterally paired, located on the superior and inferior posterolateral aspects of the vertebrae. And they're positioned so that the superior demifacet of the inferior vertebra articulates with the head of the same rib that articulates with the inferior demifacet of the superior rib. Okay, so that means that the inferior demifacet of T4 and the superior demifacet of T5 go together and they articulate with the head of the fifth rib. So this is designed to explain a little bit more. To reiterate, the superior costal facet of T1 is complete or whole. It alone articulates with the first rib and of course C7 doesn't have a costal facet. But T1 has the typical inferior demifacets for articulation with the second rib. And so T11 and T12 have whole or complete facets for rib articulation too, but they also lack the facets on their transverse processes. In some faces, actually, T10 can look a little bit like T11 and T12. And when that happens, there's no inferior demifacet on T9, as that's not required to articulate with the 10th rib. So you can see there may be quite a number of structural variations. The T12 transition I mentioned before is a thoracic vertebra, of course, uh, because it has costal facets and superior articular facets, but it can be considered lumbar in that there's no real rotation at this level, and it also contains uh, the small mammillary processes, which you can find located on the back end of the superior articular process, and that allows for an attachment point of the intertransversary and the multifidus muscles. So we're getting, I think, a little bit into the weeds, and it's a subject I will consider when I do the back
probably the end of next year or even at the start of 2025, depending on how uh, we progress. I'm not really going to get into it here uh, uh, for those who can't wait on that subject. The thoracic vertebrae, just very briefly, obviously provide an attachment for the erector spinae, but also obviously the interspinals, the intertransferseri, as mentioned, the latissimus dorsi, the multifidus, the rhomboid major and minor, which we've met, the rotators, the semispinalis, the serratus posterior and inferior and superior, the splenus, splenus capitis and, and cervicus uh, or cervices and the trapezius. And of course, some of these we've already met in our anatomy journey. But some of the interesting things about this part of the spine from a surgeon's point of view is the narrowness of the spinal canal, which is so prone at this level to spinal cord damage. The approaches, of course, to the spinal canal given the overlying great vessels. The axis or exposed with the sympathetic chain or the azygous vein, the narrowness of the pedicles. Just for interest, I mean, we're talking about this, although, as I say, I'll be going into it in much, much more de detail in, in the future. Uh, but if you look at 90% of all spinal injuries involve region T10 to L2, and about half of these are unstable. And despite this, there's a tremendous force to fracture this area because of the rigidity of the vertebral column here, the orientation of the facet joints, the thinness of the intervertebral discs, and the presence of the rib cage. The T12 vertebra is actually the most commonly fractured isolated vertebra because it's transitional, moving from kind of rigidity to mobility as it lumberizes. Now, see now if you can get hold of some ribs to examine, and we need to outline the parts of the rib. Uh, we've got the head, the neck, the tubercle, its medial rounded part, which articulates with the transverse process of the vertebra, and the lateral, rather rougher part, which attaches to the lateral costotransverse ligament at its tip. And then you've got the body of the rib, or the shaft, you might, might want to use that term, and then the angle, and if the anterior end is there for costochondral attachment. So I would take out a ribbon and you want to go through all those elements, the head, the neck, the tubercle, look at its different medial and lateral parts, the body or rib or shaft, the angle, you can include the subcostal groove and the costochondral attachment. All of these things need to be identified. Somebody throws you a rib in an exam and says, just talk about it. All you need to do is describe what's in your hands and you're halfway there. You've already passed such a viva. When you're describing the ribs, outline and use these specific terms. There are parts of the rib and I expect you to know them. Now, of course, we know that there are differences with the special ribs as we've spoken about them. We take a first rib, that's a flat and short one, has a small radius of curvature. If you look at an articulated skeleton, you can see a different rib orientation, what represents the superior and inferior or external and internal surfaces of that rib. You want to look at those components. For the most part, all have, have a smooth superior margin and a sharper inferior margin with a definite subcostal groove, as I've mentioned. 
because the tubercle sits at the back of the rib, and as I've said before, is posterior to the head in the upper ribs, the AP and transverse diameters, the anteroposterior and transverse diameters, are increased if the ribs are raised. And the increase in the transverse diameter is actually a little greater, if you think about it, for the ribs where the tubercle articulates a little bit below the head. So these slight anatomical variations, which are normal, provide a greater mechanical advantage in respiration. There's a reason for everything that we're actually seeing that we can interpret what we're actually seeing. It has to mean something. We're not just looking at a rib. We have to appreciate the difference of its mechanics. And uh, I, I think I'll return in the later podcast I've already mentioned to the thoracic movements in respiration. We will cover them very briefly, but when we cover the lung and, and bronchopulmonary segments. Looking at the first rib again, note that if it sits properly on the table, you've defined its side. It has a back shallow groove for the subclavian artery and a forward groove for the subclavian vein, between which is, of course, the attachment point of the scalenus anterior, the so-called scalene tubercle. Have a look for these things. And, of course, as we stated in other podcasts, that's the defining point of the three parts of the subclavian artery, ahead, behind, and beyond the scalenus anterior muscle, very much like the axillary artery behind the pec minor ahead, behind, and beyond. The second rib is, if we look at that, a little different, but on its upper surface, it's dominated by a large tuberosity for the attachment of the serratus anterior muscle. And it's, of course, uh, thinner and longer than the first rib. Nothing much really to talk about there. We just want to look at it very simply. The 11th and 12th ribs, of course, as I said, the only one facet on their heads with no necks and no tubercles. There are, I think, a few additional caveats that we can make. The rib cage's volume is 10% smaller in women than in men, but the craniocaudal inclination of the ribs is greater in women, so that their ribs grow longer relative to the axial skeleton than they do in men. Our knowledge here, of course, should have some practical significance, which it does for rib fracture and its management. We get excited about rib fracture, not only because it's common in motor vehicle accident, but because it leads to three discrete problems in patients. It leads to hypoventilation because of pain, impairment of gas exchange with associated underlying pulmonary contusion, and an overall alteration in breathing mechanics. Now, this is not a polemic on pulmonary physiology. But the presence of a flail segment, for example, where two segments of a rib are fractured, leads to an isolated part of the chest wall, which has paradoxical movement moving inward on inspiration with a resultant reduction in tidal volume. Whilst the PaCO2, the arterial CO2 concentration, may remain normal because the respiratory rate increases. But ultimately, with such an inefficient breathing, there is a higher oxygen consumption, and ultimately hypoxia. We've got to understand not only how the anatomy itself is relevant, say in this case relevant in a fracture with a flail segment, but how it affects the physical presentation of the patient, their likely complications, creates pulmonary pathophysiology. We have to care about these things as it affects the need to ventilate such cases, 
with positive pressure ventilation. It's associated with a higher mortality depending on the number of fractured ribs. So for example, seven or more can overall have about a 30% mortality, although there are a lot of mitigating factors about a broad statement like that. But the anatomy here is, is important, for example, in the elderly, for example, since there's osteoporosis, there's cartilage degeneration, reduced thoracic wall elasticity, a reduced muscle mass, altered respiratory dynamics, a weaker diaphragm and intercostals, alveolar loss, and so on and on and on it goes. The anatomy, the physiology, the pathology, the pathophysiology, the clinical presentations, specialist groups all become important if you can integrate the anatomy. There's reduced in those patients, for example, in elderly patients, a reduced total lung volume capacity, there's impaired gas exchange, uh, and poor respiratory reserve. So there are things that you can do to talk about why this anatomy is important. That's what I'm trying to get on. Now, all of these things would be valuable, actually, in any anatomical discussion about older people and why, an anat why anatomy may lead with a rib fracture in an essay or a viva to a higher likelihood of atelectasis, hypoventilation, pneumonia, and a ventilator requirement, particularly in the elderly. Are you getting my point about how we can use anatomy? We're not straying, of course, because this is its relevance. We need, of course, to understand these things, not just in anatomy, but in our professional lives, yeah? And I would go on. But anyway, let's carry on with some basic anatomy. We've done some ribs. We want to pick up a sternum, and it has a manubrium as a body and a ziffy sternum. By the way, <coughs> ziffy comes from the Greek ziphos, which means sword-like. The manubrium slopes forward a little, and it has its thickest and widest part of this apparatus, if we can call it that. In the middle is the jugular notch. On each side is the clavicular articulation projecting slightly above the sternum. I'm just looking at one now. The first uh, costal cartilage fuses with the manubrium, and then the manubrium narrows a little to the sternum, articulating at the sternal angle by a little fibrocartilaginous joint and disc, and the second costal cartilage then articulates at that level, the adjacent body uh, by two separate synovial joints. That sternal angle I've already spoken about, but it's important. It's the second costal cartilage landmark and is a point from which the ribs can be counted. And that level, if, as I've said, we were to take a bandsaw to someone, would separate the superior from the inferior mediastina. By the way, that angle of Lewy is a synarthrosis, that means a fibrous connection, not allowing much, if any, movement. Well, so who cares about the angle of Lewy? We're always asking it in anatomy. Well, we like a bit of history on this course on anatopod. Nobody's actually sure where Lewy came from, just very briefly, perhaps he's Antoine Louis, 1723 to 1792, who was a French clinician and a professor of physiology, or he might be Wilhelm Friedrich Ludwig, who was a German, 1790 to 1865, who worked as a surgeon actually for Napoleon's army, and who was the seminal descriptor for Ludwig's angina, which we considered in AHN2, 
and also on the anatomy of the pharynx, by the way, in AHN 13, if you want to go and revise those. Or maybe it was another Frenchman, Pierre-Charles-Alexandre-Louis, 1787-1872, who worked in Odessa for the Tsar, and who was an expert on diphtheria. No one really knows who it was. You know, very interesting, Antoine Louis, the first one, was the one who, with Joseph Ignatz Guillotine, invented what they thought was a humane method of execution. The device guillotine was actually originally called a louisette, but they changed it. Um, just some interesting points. So if we get to that angle of Louis, um, there are some variations of the angle. It ranges from about 150 to 180 degrees. The pectoralis major, of course, takes its origin across the anterior surface of the sternum and the sternocostal articulations, including that angle. But we need to remember that landmark because people ask what goes across it. If we took that proverbial bandsaw, or we could take a CAT scan, axial CAT scan, we'd see that that would hit back in the vertebral column at the level of the T4-5 intervertebral disc. It's a division point between the superior and inferior mediastinum, as I've said, by definition. It overlies the aortic arch on the left and the superior vena cava on the right. It's the extension point of the pericardium. It is roughly at the level of the bifurcation of the trachea. It is roughly at the level of the bifurcation, probably slightly above, of the pulmonary trunk. It's at the point where the ligamentum arteriosum attaches to the aortic arch, right? That's the point where the recurrent laryngeal nerve rounds back off the vagus and goes up into the tracheoesophageal groove. It is the point where the thoracic duct moves from the right side of the chest to the left. And as I've said in the formation of the superior of the cava, this is the point over the right lung root where the azygos vein on the right enters the superior vena cava. So all those things need to be considered. If you're looking at a, a, a lung cancer or something on a CAT scan, you're looking at all these structures, then you need to identify what you've identified there axially. So you need to change the dimensional orientation, if you like, of your uh, brain. But that's where all that activity is occurring. Now, if we look at the body of the sternum, that's got four fused parts. These articulate with the third to the fifth costal cartilages. The sixth articulates with the lowest part of the body of the sternum. The seventh, lowest part of the xiphoid, all by synovial joints. The xiphoid is thin and cartilaginous, and it's perforated, slowly ossifying through life. I would add a few little comments about ossification. It commences in the manubrium and the upper sternal body at about the sixth month, then separately in the middle sternum a month or so later, and finally in the lower sternum at about the first postnatal year. So it's a kind of segmental upper, middle and lower. The xiphoid ossifies typically between year five, but can be as late as year 18. And the segmental nature of this has led, of course, to the sternum sternobrae, like vertebrae. Developmental anomalies of sternal fusion are a feature of a range of congenital anomalies, and they include things like trisomy 18. There are a number of unusual 
syndromes which we don't need to go into, Schneisel, Gideon, or Coffin, Lowry syndrome and so on. They may interest you, these rare syndromes. Almost all Down syndrome babies have extra ossification centres in the manubrium in their early years. <clears throat> and that's because of the early formation of pre-sternal mesenchyme. So these kinds of trisomies tend to affect sternal development. The ribs begin as cartilage with primary ossification centres located typically near the angle. An ossification occurs away from the head and neck. And in adolescence, there are often separate ossific centres in the tubercles and the heads. And again, I would refer the student to an appreciation of thoracic wall abnormalities, uh, since this is the area we considered, um, such as pectus carinatum or pectus excavatum. We all hear about these. Carinatum really is defined as a continuum of the anterior chest wall deformities noted by the protrusion of the sternum and associated convex deformity of the adjacent costal cartilages. Um, the most common categorizations are so-called chondrogladiolar, chondromanubrial types. The gladiolar pectus carinatum consists actually of a protrusion of the costal cartilages with deformation of the gladiolar segment the so-called body, if you like, of the sternum, which can be symmetrical or asymmetrical. The rarer so-called chondromanubrial subtype, really, of pectus carinatum is a protrusion of the manubrium of the sternum and the adjacent costal cartilages. So there are some variations. And uh, these can be reconstructed as an open technique by resecting these deformed cartilages with or without some kind of sternal osteotomy. And that's been a pretty primary modality for several decades, but there are some minimally invasive thoracoscopic operative reconstructive techniques with or without resection of the deformed cartilages, uh, which have been recently described. Excavatum, if it's to be treated at all, can be managed by the so-called NUS, N-U-S-S procedure, which is nowadays a thoracoscopically inserted metal bar. There are other operations, ravage operations, and so on. I did mention uh, or say that we were going to go on to a discussion of the uh, thoracic movements, and I'm going to include a, a fairly typical consideration um, of these. There's quite some debate about uh, some of these movements, but for exam purposes, I think we can make a, a standard answer. Beyond the normal inspiratory muscles, the diaphragm, the intercostals and the scalenes, there are accessory muscles of respiration which include the sternocleidomastoid, I'd include the latissimus dorsi, even the erector spiny, the quadratus lumborum, the pec major in forced inspiration. And these muscles act a little bit more complicated by twisting movements across the intercostal spaces. And for the ergonomic prevention of these spaces sort of bulging or ballooning out too much. And that makes expiration, in effect, more of a passive uh, process. The aim, as I've already said, is the change in the dimensions of the thorax, the anteroposterior dimension, transverse and vertical dimension, and this former relies on the hinge of about five degrees at the angle of Louis. 
which we've already mentioned. And there's a discussion of this rotation around the axis of the rib head, which has been typically called a pump handle effect, so that there's some rotation around the costotransverse ligaments. All ribs upon inhalation will externally rotate and elevate anteriorly and internally rotate and depress posteriorly. And of course the reverse occurs passively in expiration. But the suggestion's also been made that the lower ribs in an axis through the costochondral junction uh, act more as a kind of bucket handle movement. And the latter increases the transverse diameter of the thorax. The vertical aspect obviously increases because of diaphragmatic activity. So this system suggests, to reiterate, an increase in the AP diameter, the lateral diameter and the vertical diameter by these three separate but interrelated mechanisms. The argument's also been made to distinguish between abdominal and thoracic respiration. But we'll leave it as simply as that, that that is actually the way um, that uh, your examiners, certainly in anatomy, still think of it by those three movements and expect you to, um, to answer it. I think the next area that we're going on to in this thoracic mix is a little bit about thoracotomy and thoracoscopy and its anatomical approaches. Well, the next thing that we need to discuss is the anatomical features that pertain to thoracotomy. The posterolateral thoracotomy is still the commonest thoracic approach in general thoracic surgery, even in the era of VATS video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery. And it provides, that is the posterolateral thoracotomy, an excellent access in most cases to the lung, to the hilum, to the middle and the posterior mediastinum and the trachea and esophagus. It's still, I think, the um, thoracic workhorse, even though it's extremely painful and obviously affects post-operative respiratory mechanics. Patients are placed in the lateral decubitus with the operated side up and uh, they're immobilised with sandbags, beanbags that support the back, the abdomen. Strips of adhesive tape are placed around the hips to secure them to the table. The lower arm is on an arm board uh, and that's at a right angle usually with the table. The upper arm is then rotated upwards and it's fixed at the elbow. The legs are usually separated by a pillow. So if you haven't gone into a thoracic um, procedure, open thoracic procedure, have a look at the positioning of patients because that's actually pretty important. Compare that positioning of a patient having a thoracotomy with someone who's going to have an open renal approach or a nephrectomy for that matter, if it's going to be done open. The lower leg is flexed at the knee, the upper leg lies straight, so it's a very specific uh, position. And um, you can place a roll under the patient's chest which increases the spread of the intercostal space. And um, it's important when you're positioning these people to ensure that the arm and shoulder are supported, you don't have the shoulder injury, a brachial plexus injury, and so on. A skin incision is typically started at the 
um, point of the anterior axillary line over about the fifth or sixth intercostal space after it's marked. It's curved around the tip of the scapula. It's continued posteriorly, really, along a line uh, that is between the scapula and the spine. And it's carried upwards to the level of about T4, sometimes even higher, if needed. And anteriorly, the skin incision is something that follows the outline of the ribs. Um, it's rather oblique um, uh, in its direction rather than being a horizontal incision. And um, obviously you remember that the rib spaces are too lower anteriorly than they are posterior. And that's why a sort of horizontal incision um, is not used because if you use that, it, it, the upper flap is quite sort of thick and bulky and you can't really see uh, your way across the operation all the time you're pushing it out of the way. So the actual incision becomes very important. Because of the anatomy we spoke about, the lat dorsi is actually usually the first muscle that you're encountered uh, or encountering, pardon me, and um, you divide part of that obviously with cautery so that it can be reapproximated. You can increase scapular mobility. There is actually a bit of the anterior part of the trapezius and rhomboids can be divided posteriorly if you need to do that. Um, if you can spare the serratus anterior as well, then that leads to a bit of better mobility. And um, basically, most pulmonary resections you would probably do, I think, through the fifth intercostal space. And so to identify that correct intercostal space, you put your hand superiorly, really, beneath the scapula until you hit the first rib. And it's usually easiest to identify because it's broadest, uh, it's horizontal, uh, at least uh, anteriorly. And then you then count the ribs and the intercostal space is numbered down until you get to the appropriate intercostal space. There are ultimate ways of opening that intercostal space. Um, you can resect the length of rib uh, to have proper access. Uh, but these days it's not particularly commonly done. Um, it can be done for someone having redo surgery or sometimes a decortication for chronic empyemathoresis. If a rib is to be resected, then the periosteum should be incised over the rib length uh, using electric cautery, and then it's reflected from the rib superiorly and inferiorly with a periosteal elevator. And the rib can then be divided anteriorly and posteriorly with the rib cutter and removed. Um, the um, basic uh, technique is um, to also reflect the peri periosteum, pardon me, from the upper border of the rib with a periosteal elevator. And that should be done to avoid any injury, obviously, to the intercostal neurovascular bundle lying in the subcostal groove. And uh, that therefore means that you've got to elevate over the superior border of the rib from back to front, typically. And uh, that can be facilitated by upward retraction of the scapula, a bit of anterior retraction of the serratus anterior. You open the endothoracic fascia and the parietal pleura, the chest spreader, uh, retractor is then placed uh, 
so that the vertical limb is anteriorly placed. The vertical limb of the retractor is used to um, pull and hold also the serratus anterior muscle away from the incision. Uh, and it's important to spread the intercostal space fairly slowly, um, particularly in older people, so that you prevent rib fractures. Um, obviously, we drain these incisions, usually with a couple of chest drains, uh, and they're brought out through small skin incisions located below the main incision, usually in line with the anterior superior iliac spine. That's one way of thinking about it. Um, that allows, I think, patients to lie on their back without kinking of the tube or even dislodging them. And it allows them to have active physiotherapy. Um, if a chest tube is directed towards the apex, it can be placed above the upper border of the rib so that it rests against the rib, doesn't have a tendency to displace inferiorly. So all of these little things are important, uh, particularly if you're putting a chest tube directly towards the base of the pleural space, the second one, that should rest against the inferior border of the rib. And I think for closure of the intercostal spaces, one can use uh, absorbable interrupted sutures that are passed through a hole that can be made with a rib punch in the lower rib and around the upper rib, and kind of pericostal sutures really, and that's designed also to avoid injury to the intercostal neurovascular bundle. Um, so I think, you know, your anatomy allows you to position the patient pretty well and it avoids shoulder or brachial plexus injuries. You know the nature of the skin incision and by knowing the anatomy of the intercostal muscles, you can create the appropriate um, uh, entry into the chest. Obviously, there's, there's quite a number of muscle-sparing variants of this, the so-called lateral or auxiliary thoracotomy, which does provide very good exposure of the pulmonary hilum, the fissures, the apices, the diaphragm. It is of limited, um, it, it's a value, pardon me, in limited procedures such as uh, wedge resections or maybe an apical bullectomy, a sleeve lobectomy and the like. The incision in this case is horizontal rather than curved and it extends from the anterior lateral dorsi margin towards the submammary groove at the lateral pectoralis major margin. So it's a different incision. Um, it's set at a, about an areola level in men, so it's only about 15 or 20 centimetres long. The lat dorsi is then separated from the serratus and retracted, and the serratus is separated from the pec major, and the ribs are separated without a periosteal split and often a single intercostal catheter may be used. So again, our knowledge of anatomy may allow us to use this so-called muscle sparing variant. This is all different to what we might do in an emergency, and I would refer um, you to your cardiothoracic texts, but it is of value, certainly the emergency thoracotomy, the kind of on-the-street or roadside, curbside thoracotomy for penetrating chest wound, and from personal experience, it certainly can be life-saving. You don't need a lot of equipment. Um, patients can be supine, and you can make bilateral small incisions in the fifth interspace in the mid-axillary line. And obviously, if a person returns with vital signs there, then you've dealt with a tension 
pneumothorax or tension hemoneumothorax, but if not, you can continue this kind of clamshell approach and you can insert two fingers under the intercostal muscles, push away the lung and open the space like a clamshell thoracotomy. For that, you really do need a gilet saw and that can be used to pass underneath the sternum and just from the two handles of the gilet saw, you can cut through the sternum and that allows you this open clamshell thoracotomy. In that circumstance, as I've said, if the patient would have no particular vital signs or limited vital signs, then you can tent the pericardium and you incise it vertically down the middle, which protects the phrenic nerves. And there are a few scenarios then in this circumstance. The cardiac beat returns, um, you can stem bleeding, you can close cardiac wounds or just put a finger into them. And the heart begins, but it's slow, and here it may be supported by direct cardiac massage, or if you're in a circumstance where inotropes can be used. The other circumstance is obviously the heart remains asystolic. The massage that can be done, obviously, is usually a two-handed affair, one hand really behind the heart, which is sitting in that um, oblique sinus, which we'll talk about when we talk about in the next couple of podcasts, the structure of the heart and sinuses, and there's some really interesting things to say about the surgical significance of the sinuses. This is one of them, that you can place your hand to what's called the basal surface of the heart, which is really the posterior surface of the heart, behind the heart, and the other hand is then anteriorly so that you can compress it, but the aim is not to lift the heart right out, that actually restricts venous return. And an assistant can even compress the distal aorta against the thoracic spine, which is there designed during this rather uh, dramatic episode to encourage coronary and cerebral perfusion. And in these emergency situations, a finger control of a bleeding ventricle is best. One can put in, obviously, a small Foley's catheter, which can occlude uh, a ventricular tear, um, providing that's not too large so that it doesn't compromise ventricular filling. And the last resort is to suture or even clip the muscle. I don't favour that because it can injure a coronary artery with a lot of blood around. Um, and there are obviously internal defibrillators which can be used to about 10 joule if needed. So all of the knowledge of anatomy here becomes very important. Um, for an approach to thoracotomy, even an emergency thoracotomy. There's another thing I suppose we should say is that this is the era of thoracoscopy and uh, we can broadly divide it into sort of minimally invasive medical thoracoscopies or surgical thoracoscopies for which the term video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery or VATS is more traditionally in use. And... Um, you know, these are rigid and flexible approaches, also with typically fourth and fifth interspace entry ports in the mid-axillary line. There's a so-called safe triangle horizontally above the nipple and between the lap dorsi and the pec major. And a single port could be used, for example, for diagnostic purposes as well as pleural biopsy or talc poudrage. But a second port is often needed for various surgical procedures in medical access, loculated fluid collections, etc., adhesiolysis or pinch lung biopsies. 
Very briefly, I think, concerning vats, uh, there's direct visual inspection of the pleural cavity, which um, has been performed since 1910 by Jacobius, who was the first to use a thoracoscope to actually diagnose and treat tubercular suffusions. But it has the advantage of less post-operative pain, early mobilisation, lower morbidity, short hospital stay, lower costs, better cosmesis, all these things that minimally invasive surgery has. And it's been extended really, I think, from simple diagnostic and therapeutic procedures of the pleura, lungs and mediastinum, right out to pulmonary operations such as simple wedge and segmental resections and right through to complete lobectomies. And the, some of these new approaches have been created, like the posterior lobectomy approach, which was devised, I think, by William Walker in Edinburgh in the early 1990s. I don't want to get into these in too great a detail. Um, you can look that up particularly, but the surgeon stood posteriorly, or stands posteriorly to the patient. Uh, a utility incision can be made at the 6th or 7th interspace anterior to the lap dorsi muscle instead of higher up at the 4th interspace. The cam report can be put through the oscultatory triangle. And then the order of dissection is more from posterior to anterior where the fissure is opened up first to identify and isolate pulmonary arterial branches. And this gives a better access to the posterior hilum. And so this is capable of doing wedge resections in lungs, segmentectomies, lobectomies, closure of persistent or recurrent pneumothoraces, identification of a bronchopleural fistula. It's useful for adhesolysis or pleurodesis, so decortication of the pleura. Um, mediastinal approaches can be done with this and uh, removal of mediastinal cysts or thymectomies, um, some neurogenic tumours. Uh, the esophagus and diaphragm can be approached for tumour staging and even for resection or diaphragmatic repairs. And some have done anti-reflux surgery through this uh, uh, thoracic or thoracoscopic approach. Um, I think as far as the heart and great vessels are concerned, a kind of pericardiectomy or partial Pericardiectomy for chronic constrictive pericarditis can be done. And um, there have been some minimally invasive valve procedures and coronary artery procedures, ligation of patent ductus and so on. But it's not just only the access to the lungs and the, um, the great vessels or the heart, but some people have done some spinal work there, you know, dorsal thoracic sympathectomies or so-called splanchnicolysis for chronic pancreatic pain. Uh, spinal abscesses have been drained, discectomies have been done, some corrections of spinal deformities and so on. I think from an anaesthetic point of view, obviously VATS can be performed using either local, regional or general anaesthesia. And the simplest technique is to use a local anaesthetic to infiltrate the lateral thoracic wall and parietal pleura, and we've gone through that previously in a previous podcast. Alternatively, intercostal nerve blocks, which we've discussed, can be performed at the level in the incision and at two interspaces above and below. There's another option of thoracic epidural anaesthesia. Uh, for VATS procedures under local or regional anaesthesia, an ipsilateral stellate ganglion block could be performed to inhibit the cough reflex as well. 
single lumen endotracheal tubes can be used for VATS under GA, but obviously if the lungs are not separated, positive pressure ventilation to both lungs prevents lung collapse on the operated side. But lung separation can obviously be used as well so that there's a complete collapse. And I won't go into the details of these. I'm not a thoracoscopic surgeon, but those interested can look at the instrumentations and the incisions and the features of segmentectomy, stapling, triple staple techniques and so on. There's a lot of things here. It's applicable in children as well. Um, as surgical equipment becomes miniaturised, VATS is being applied to younger and younger children. And there's been some experimental work actually with neonatal pigs to show that one lung ventilation is actually well tolerated in newborn lungs. So it can have a special role in children for spinal deformities. And, um, you know, in the same way that procedures have evolved from pulmonary resection from simple biopsy to lobectomy to pulmonary resection, this is advanced also, uh, particularly um, in children. I won't go into that, but spontaneous pneumothorax in the paediatric population has been used for. Um, uh, it's been used in sympathectomy, T2, T3 sympathectomy for severe hyperhidrosis, as we know. And there are a number of uh, different uh, options that are available. Uh, it is relevant to know that about 10% of VATS patients do have complications, and that does include hemorrhage, subcutaneous emphysema, empyema, obviously recurrent pneumothorax, in some cases pneumonia and pulmonary edema, and uh, even tumours have been disseminated at thoracostomy sites, persistent air leaks and so on. And People have had problems with gas exchange after the procedures. I won't go into all of this in, in great detail, including uh, dysrhythmias after VATS. That's for those who are interested in looking it up. But what I wanted to do in this little separate section was to explain how the anatomy allows us to better understand how an open thoracotomy or a minimally invasive thoracoscopy um, is performed knowing our anatomy. We're moving a little off topic here, I think, but my intention was that you understood the individual anatomy for these approaches. Let me know if you wish me to go through some of the anatomy of the individual lobectomies or a triple staple segmentectomy, types of lymph node excisions, and I'm quite happy to do so in a dedicated podcast. And you can contact our podcast manager, Margaret Anderson, on M-E-G-A-N-D-O, Megando57 at yahoo.com. That's a personal one that we've set up just to deal with uh, particular questions and suggestions. If you've got any suggestions, if you want any areas covered, please contact us. Okay, we're next to consider, I think, the mediastinum, the pleura, the lungs, and the bronchomediastinal segments. We'll return, I think, to more anatomy, perhaps less surgery in that segment. So thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.